Heavenly Father, we think of these words, uh, this opening verse, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and, and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We recognize that that is your desire for us, that we would be growing mature in holiness in the fear of God. So I pray, Lord, now as we direct our thoughts to your word, that you would accomplish that in us, Lord, that as we look together at your word and seek to understand it, would you, by your grace, uh, transform us, renew our minds in the truth, make us more like Christ. Uh, We just pray these things together as we look to your word. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. And we pray this together in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, the great objective of the church of Jesus Christ could be summarized as to make disciples, which of course comes from Matthew 28, that great commission. Jesus instructed his followers to make it their first priority to make disciples of all the nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This means that we are to evangelize and win people to Christ and then mark them as Christ followers by baptizing them or immersing them in water. We might call this the first step of making disciples. The second step includes teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. That's Matthew 28, verse 20. So we teach Christians, committed followers of Jesus, to observe all the things that Christ commanded. Now consider this for a moment. Who would you say is the greatest disciple maker of all time? The greatest disciple maker of all time. And you can't say Jesus. He doesn't count. No Sunday school answers. That that will not work. Who is the greatest disciple maker making disciples of Christ? Who was the most fruitful follower of Jesus in terms of obeying the Great Commission? And obviously, we could not give a dogmatic answer to this question, but I think we would all agree that the Apostle Paul would be a great contender. The Apostle Paul has to be one of the greatest disciple-makers that ever lived on the face of the earth. And, And just to see him in action a little bit this morning, I'd invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 14. In Acts 13 and 14, Paul is on his first missionary journey, uh, making his way through Asia Minor, our present-day Turkey. And in Acts 14, beginning in verse 19, uh, we see as Paul is moving between two cities, he's leaving Lystra and entering a city called Derby. Uh, or Derby. Look with me at Acts 14, verse 19. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And if did you catch that? important phrase there in verse 21. It says, when they had made many disciples. Interestingly, this is, this is the same word that we find in the Great Commission, that, that command to make disciples. There it's a command, it's an imperative. Here it's recorded in the past tense. It's they had made many disciples in this city of, of Derby. So notably, this is, this is really the only place in the New Testament after Jesus's 
great commissioning there in Matthew 28 do we find this exact word to make disciples. This is the only place. Nowhere else in the rest of the New Testament do we find this, this verb, make disciples. And from, the, from, so from this point on and in the book of Acts in general, to, all the way through Revelation, we never see this word again. But we see that Paul successfully accomplished the Great Commission here in, in Derby. And this means he evangelized them and then he taught them to obey all that Christ had commanded. But one, one wonders here, what did Paul teach them? What did Paul teach them? Uh, we know that this disciple-making ministry includes teaching. So in the span of the time that he was there in Derby, which doesn't appear to be very long, what did he teach them? Unfortunately, from Acts 14, we don't really know. It doesn't really tell us. The text doesn't say what he taught. It just simply says that he made many disciples, which we know, again, from Matthew 28, includes his teaching ministry. However, we do know that Paul made disciples in many cities, and including the city of Thessalonica. And if we carefully consider 1 Thessalonians, we gain insight and understanding into what the church had known, what Paul taught them. And thus we can learn about what Paul thought was necessary to be taught when he made disciples. And so it's, in this sense, interesting to note what this church already knows, what he assumes they already know in his letter. Paul was only there for a few months, along with those two others, Silvanus and Timothy. They were establishing that, that church in the faith. And through this initial investment of time and teaching, this young church full of young converts really knew a great deal. And we can just assume that by understanding what he explained to them and what he assumed that they would know. So considering Paul as a great disciple maker and following 1 Thessalonians closely, we get a window into how he made disciples. And so so by tracing his teaching to this church, we can really be further equipped in our own ministry, and our own ability to make disciples. And so both for our own souls are these things profitable, but, but also for our outward ministry to others. And so this is sort of what we're setting out to do today. For the past several weeks, we've been studying this book of First Thessalonians, and we'll turn our attention there now. So I would invite you to turn over to First Thessalonians with me. I just think it's so important that you see these things with your own eyes, see what God has revealed for us in his word. Uh, so as you look at this passage with me, let's, would you just please follow along as I read this first chapter to you again. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. So it says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, 
your faith towards God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. This morning, we'll cover the last three verses of this chapter, but in case you've, you missed last week or one of the previous weeks, let me just give a quick overview of this chapter and the ground we've covered so far. In verse 2, when Paul wrote, we give thanks to God for all of you, he gives us really the theme of the entire first chapter. Throughout this chapter, Paul just develops his reasons for being thankful to God for this church. And in doing so, he's in a way encouraging this church as they would have read this letter. This church was doing well, and they were even setting an example for other Christians, as we'll see. And so when Paul was there with them about an, a year earlier, they had embraced the gospel and then began laboring for the sake of the gospel. And although this church was faithful, Paul was most thankful to God for his work in their midst. And namely, in verse 4, he was thankful that God chose them, his choice of them. He was thankful that God, we might say, elected them. Paul knew that this church was the elect children of God because of two pieces of information that he he gives us in verses 5 through 7. The first was just the way that the gospel came to them. That was his first piece of evidence. And the gospel came uh, not in words only, but it came in power. It came with full convicting force upon this people. And it also came with the full authority of the apostles. They believed these things to their very being. And the second piece of evidence was just their, the church's reception of the gospel. They received the word in the midst of tribulation while experiencing joy. They had joy in tribulation. Their eyes were set on heaven. They they just rejoiced knowing that they were being counted worthy to suffer for Christ. And furthermore, they began to imitate the disciples and ultimately the Lord, the text says. And in so doing, they became examples to all the other churches. It says all the churches in Macedonia and Achaia were taking note of this one church in Thessalonica. Other churches desired to follow the example set by these Christians here in Thessalonica. And they were just less than a year old in the faith. They were new converts, but they were suffering and experiencing joy in affliction. They were thriving in these conditions. And as a result, other churches were taking notice. In verse 7, The church probably would have been surprised to find out that other churches were viewing them as a model. And then in verses 8 and 10, Paul develops even more the praiseworthy aspects of this young church. And he does so by by further elaborating on the reports that the missionaries themselves were hearing from people outside of Thessalonica. Other believers in other cities in the the region and, and beyond We're talking about this church in Thessalonica. As we might say today, it was like the word on the street was that something was going down in Thessalonica. Other churches knew about it. It, So in that sense, it was a common experience for Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to make contact with other Christians who had already heard about the work of the Lord there in Thessalonica. Other Christians were excited and encouraged about what they were hearing coming out of Thessalonica. And as Paul explains, 
as Paul explains this to the believers in Thessalonica, he's really giving evidence to their true faith in God. And he's ultimately, going back to verse 2, citing reasons that he is thankful. But Paul is doing more than simply explaining how and why this church was an example in verses 8 through 10. He's also reminding them of some key tenets of the faith and also really foreshadowing a couple subjects that he'll touch on later in the book. In these verses, particularly verses 9 and 10, we encounter some just defining truths of Christianity, defining truths for our reflection. These are things that Paul had already instructed them about. They know something about these topics, but then he wants them to, to, bring, them a mind, to, to bring them to mind again. So as we walk through this passage together, trying to track with Paul's argumentation here, we should allow ourselves to be reminded of a few essential features of the faith, of Christian doctrine, and, really, and, there, and thereby be equipped for our own ministry, our own disciple-making ministry. And so we'll divide up these three verses or this passage like this. Verse 8 has really the news transmitted, the news transmitted. And then verses 9 and 10, we have the reports retold. So we'll begin there in verse 8. The news transmitted. For context, again, let's back up to verse 6 and read through verse 8. He says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. So here in verse 8, Paul is describing how the good news of the gospel went forth from Thessalonica. The news had gone far and wide from this city. And Paul said it, it went beyond just the two neighboring provinces there in the Roman Empire. The news from Thessalonica had made its way to Macedonian cities like Philippi. It had made its way to cities in Achaia like Corinth and Athens. But it even went beyond that. Paul says, in every place your faith towards God has gone forth. And he simply means that the news about this church had spread to the far corners of the Roman world. We know that Paul wrote this letter from the city of Corinth. That's where he wrote 1 Thessalonians. And in Acts 18.2, while Paul is there at Corinth, he encounters a couple named Priscilla, Priscilla and Aquila who have recently come from Rome. He meets them there in Corinth. And it may be that this couple came to Corinth having already heard about these Christians in Thessalonica. We could imagine this. Paul, in conversation with this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, he says, oh, let me tell you about the good work that God has done in Thessalonica. And they say, oh, Paul, we already know. We've heard about it. What an amazing testimony that God has done there. And it seems like this was the regular occurrence for them. According to verse 8, Paul and those other two missionaries, Timothy and Silvanus, realized that they didn't even need to share the news about Thessalonica anymore because it had so already spread. They already knew. So in verse 8, he's really just describing the, the expansion or the transmission of the news from Thessalonica going forth from the region or sounding out throughout the region. And he does so in this verb here, sounded forth. That's in our New Testament, this is the only time this word is used, sounded forth. This verb creates a really a great mental picture. In the original, it's this word, ez echo, 
ez echo, which we would find our word echo from. We get our word echo there. It's a similar idea. It means to ring out or sound forth. It describes sound reverberating or echoing out from a source. It's, and it's also a sound that sort of hangs in the air. It might be like, consider hearing a gunshot in a cannon. Or maybe even like the crack of a lightning bolt that is so close to you, your ears are ringing from it. Paul said that the word of the Lord sounded forth. And that is a reference to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It echoed out from them. Its source was the Thessalonians. The text says that. The word of the Lord sounded forth from you. So as the word of the Lord moved out from Thessalonica, the starting point, or maybe the epicenter, was this very church. And if we're paying close attention to the grammar here, we might notice that this verb is a passive verb. It's a passive verb. So maybe in a most literal fashion, we might render this phrase, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord has been sounded forth from you. And I think that's an important little detail to take note of because it, it means that these these Thessalonians themselves weren't echoing the message. They were just the starting point, which tells me that they weren't sending out missionaries to spread the word around there. They didn't need to do that. This, the people were already hearing about it. The, the news about this church's conversion to Christianity really spread like wildfire, and probably by believers and unbelievers alike. So I'm sure that the Christians in Thessalonica were actively spreading the gospel, but, but the city had already been turned upside down by their conversion. If you'll recall back in Acts 17, when we read the initial account of Paul coming to Thessalonica, that's what happened. The city was turned upside down. Let me just read a part of this account to you again. It says there, But the Jews, after Paul had preached in the synagogues, and won many to Christ, became jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring him out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowds and the city authorities who heard these things. So, so this large city, this influential city, roughly 100,000 people from what we know, was in an uproar because of what had happened. There were great accusations being made against the Christian. The city authorities were involved. And this, this event would have really put the church on the map. And after this, everyone who would have been interested in this new strange sect would have been hearing reports about them. As, who is this Messiah? Who, who is this new king that they're talking about? They're like the Jews, and yet they're not like the Jews. They don't follow all the Jewish laws. They, they do things differently. They're following this man named Jesus. And, so, and then the, the adherents of this new religion were being persecuted, and yet people were taking note. They were being persecuted with joy. There was joy in their suffering. And so the, the amazing joy of the Thessalonian believers under affliction really amplified the message of the gospel, spreading the message really far and wide. It was kind of like God just detonated sort of a gospel bomb there in Thessalonica, and the shockwaves pushed the reports of the Thessalonians' conversions to just the far edges of the Roman world. And furthermore, the strategic location of Thessalonica really enabled the rapid spread of the reports. 
Recall that the city of Thessalonica had a thriving seaport, and it also sat on an, on an ancient highway, the Ignatian Way, which carried goods and trade back from Europe and even as far as India. So this place was a prime condition for this report to spread. So travelers coming to Thessalonica by land or sea would soon hear or come in contact personally with one of these Christians, these otherworldly Christians. When these travelers learned of what was happening, the striking degree that these people were converting to Christianity, it would have been awe-inspiring, an awakening, and, and very definitely, to say the least, interesting to them. So all of this was the amazing effect of the gospel taking root there in Thessalonica. The gospel that produced such transformation in the lives of the Thessalonian commoners really just exploded much faster than Paul can even had moved the message ahead. One pastor theologian, John Stott, had a good term for this. He called it holy gossip. Holy gossip. I like that. It's the excited transmission of the good news from, from mouth to mouth. Uh, so just maybe just imagine some merchants on a ship saying, have you heard about what's happening in Thessalonica? It's crazy. These men who are like Jews but are not Jews, they came into the city last spring and they were preaching about a man named Jesus who they claim is God's son and they also claim he was resurrected from the dead. And they say that if you follow this Jesus, you'll be forgiven of all your sins. And, and hundreds of people have believed them. And the Jews seem to hate them. And they, they keep persecuting them. They call these people Christians. And these Jews and the city officials, they're, they're seeking to, to kill these people, to arrest them, to make it so they cannot work. They've compensated some of their property. And oddly, through all of this, they're, they're just joyful, these strange Christians. We just can't figure them out. I mean, you can imagine these kind of conversations just happening all over the Roman Empire. And the net effect of this is that the word of the Lord was being broadcast broadly. And to an extent, Paul and the other missionaries had no need to report about the matter. And if we just step back and consider this amazing move of God here, what an exciting thing to be a part of. The gospel just ripping through a new place. Uh, lives transformed, persecution from other religious groups, and, and yet joyful obedience in the midst of persecution, persecution from the government. And these are just contagious examples of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And I just think for a moment, uh, is such a thing possible for us today? What happened there in Thessalonica, could that, could that happen here in a city like Billings? Uh, you know, the city of Billings, I found out, was established in 1882, 1882, and likely the gospel and churches were in this valley before that, but that's 139 years of a gospel presence here in the Yellowstone Valley, and throughout that time, I'm sure, churches have, have come and gone. Generations of faithful Christians have gone before us in this valley, but could God do such a work again here I have to believe it's, it's possible, right? We could believe such that God would do such a thing, and I, I suspect that it will take many, many prayers for God to accomplish such a work, and really a lot of repentance among Christians, returning to the Word of God, returning to the Bible, and also probably persecution, persecution to see the gospel spread like this. But we can strive towards that end, at least through our prayers and through our efforts to return constantly to the Word of God. So this is how the news was transmitted there in verse 8. And then Paul turns to the content of the reports themselves 
in verses 9 and 10. Look there with me. This is the reports retold. The reports retold in verses 9 and 10. For they themselves report about us of what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned, from, uh, turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So note here that Paul here indicates two kinds of reports that they were hearing, two topics that he regularly heard about in these reports. The first was the, of the missionaries' entrance into the city, into Thessalonica, and the second was reports of the Thessalonians' conversion. Certainly there would have been other things he might have heard about, but at least this is what Paul felt like he wanted to mention here. Interestingly, this first kind of report has to deal with the missionaries themselves, with Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. The text very clearly says, they report about us. They report about us. That would be Paul and the others. They report about how the missionaries came to Thessalonica. Our our versions here use the term reception, but literally it's the idea of the missionaries' entrance into Thessalonica. Paul seems to be stressing that the missionaries were involved in the work of bringing the gospel to them. And likely this is a more foreshadowing of Paul's defense of his ministry that's going to come in chapter 2. So he's really subtly defending himself and reminding them of the crucial role that they played in bringing the gospel there to Thessalonica. And Paul informs the Thessalonians that other churches, other Christians, were talking about how these missionaries brought the gospel there in a godly fashion, in an upright fashion. That's the first type of report. The second type of report focuses on the Thessalonians themselves. And here is where Paul really places his emphasis. The second report, or type of report, was of the conversion of the Thessalonians. And this is really the truly arresting part of this story. People outside of Thessalonica were chattering about this church's dramatic conversion to Christ. In Paul's language, for they themselves report how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So in essence, this was the the talk of the town and in several towns, we might say. The word on the street in Philippi, Athens, Corinth, and likely even Rome was that the Thessalonians radically converted to Christianity and they were discussing how they turned. That's the word he used, turned. It's a common word in the New Testament just to describe conversion. It marks the radical change that came into the lives of these Thessalonian believers. This word can simply mean just to turn around, but it, it also has usually is used with this sense of spiritual conversion, spiritual turning. And they turned to God from idols. Formerly, they were idol worshipers. These were the pagans. These were the ones outside of the synagogue who came to Christ. And they had formerly been idol worshipers, but no longer. They turned to God. And when they immediately turned to God, they immediately had to forsake their idol worship. They knew that. They couldn't worship both. They were worshiping God now, and that means they could not worship idols. These new believers recognized that the worship of the true God necessarily excludes the worship of idols. So Paul summarizes their conversion in just a straightforward manner. He says, they turned to God from idols. But we need to understand that in a society where cult practices were really just intermingled with social activities, there was really nothing simple about this conversion. 
Let me read to you one commentator's historical perspective on the ramifications, ramifications of such a people doing such a thing. Dr. Jeffrey Weimer writes, such a total renunciation of all pagan deities also meant a complete rejection of a variety of social events, social events closely associated with the worship of these gods. Such action by Christians invoked feelings of resentment and anger in their non-Christian family members and even friends. The exclusivity of these Christians, their seeming, seemingly arrogant refusal to participate in the worship of any god but their own, deeply wounded public sensibilities and even led to charges that they were atheists. Citizens of Thessalonica worried about whether the gods whose home on Mount Olympus, which they could see a mere 50 miles away to the southwest, might punish the whole city for the sacrilegious actions by a few by sending disease, famine, or other natural disasters upon the city. Turning from idols also meant a rejection of the imperial cult, thereby potentially jeopardizing Thessalonica's favored status as a city with Rome and the Roman Empire. The conversion of the Thessalonian Christians involved a truly radical break from their previous way of life, a break that naturally incurred the, res the resentment and anger of their fellow citizens, end quote. So what we need to understand is that Christians did not tolerate any idol worship of any kind. They would not associate with it. For example, Paul laid down a clear principle about idol worship and eating food sacrificed to idols in 1 Corinthians 10.27. He says this, If one of the unbelievers invites you, that is, invites you into his home, and you want to go, eat whatever is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. So just go and eat whatever is set before you. But if anyone says to you, this meat is a sacrifice to idols, do not eat it. And so just, just imagine for this. You've, you've been invited to a, a friend's house, maybe a family meal, and then someone just mentions, you're about to partake of the, of the food, and then someone says, oh yeah, this was sacrificed to God so-and-so. And then you have to say, mm, can't eat it, no can do, and you get up and leave. Imagine what that would have created, the, the, the social dynamics such an action would have created. Such radical allegiance to Christ and such a radical rejection of pagan de deities would have created no small hubbub there in Thessalonica. And, and furthermore, Paul writes in a similar theme back in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And if you would, I'd like you, I'd like you to turn over there with me, just backing up a few books uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, ch chapter 6, verse 14. And I really want you to look at the separation that Paul is instructing these Christians there in Corinth to do. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, we find this famous verse. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawless? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. 
Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So here, Paul is speaking to Christians living in Corinth, surrounded by pagan deities and gross, immoral religious practices. The worship of idols and all of its trappings was just everywhere in the city. And Paul calls them to separate. And I think we have to rightly extrapolate from here to our time today. And no, our culture is not engaging in the worship of the pantheon of false Roman gods. In the mainstream, the majority of our culture is not worshiping carved images. No, the religion of our day is much more subtle than it, than it appeared here. But it is a religion at the end of the day. It is a religion. I'd call it the religion of our day is just secularism or secular humanism. It's really just the full-blown replacing of God in every aspect of society. It's, it's the rejection of God and the elevation and the worship of self. And so we are living in a day when all around us we see the effects of God's judgment upon America. In Romans 1, we find a description of a people or a nation judged by God. And this is quite interesting to read and just think about our country. It says this in Romans 1.26, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. So what we have here in Romans 1 is an apt description of our current secular culture. And if you're still in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, let me just ask you, what does it look like for us to practice verse 17? How can we come out from the midst of a pagan culture and be separate and live to God alone? How can we cleanse ourselves from all the defilement of flesh and spirit, protecting holiness in the fear of God? It seems that many Christians today are really just trying to court the favor of the world. Now, they want to appear tolerant and really culturally sensitive, and they then imbibe in the entertainment of the world. They laugh at the jokes of the world. They res reserve scornful derision for the things that the world and the elites find to be scornful. But let me tell you that 2 Corinthians chapter 6 applies to us today. Recall what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. So God says that we must come out from their midst and be separate. Be in the world, but not of the world. And we, in, in, in so doing, we follow the pattern set by the, uh, the apostles and the missionaries in the apostolic age. The Thessalonians turn to God from idols. In other words, they repented. They embraced Christ in his cross, and they fully rejected every other sinful way, which 
by the way, is the necessary requirement of any who would follow Jesus. Unless a man repent of his sins, forego any false worship, and embrace the lordship of Jesus Christ, he cannot be saved. Just hear from Jesus himself. He said this, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever save it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. So Jesus says, lose your life. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. Make him your king. This is what it means to repent. This is what it means to be a Christian. And this is what the Thessalonians did. They turned to God from idols. And as Paul continues in 1 Thessalonians, he really cites two reasons or, or two purposes in their conversion. They turned to God so that they could do two things. And the first was they converted to God from idols to serve a living and true God. We might call this a wholehearted commitment to God. The word serve here literally means to serve as a slave. Serve as a slave. Much like today, the ancient Greeks did not like to use this slave language. It was unseemly to talk of being a slave to a god. They would not have talked like that. The ancient Greeks would have been offended by even that verbiage, to be a slave to a god. They did not slave themselves to their gods. But Paul and the Christians slave themselves to Yahweh. They desired to give total commitment to the living and true God. And not a stone or wooden statue, but a living God. Not an imposter, the living and true, genuine God. The second reason or, or purpose of the Thessalonians for their conversion was to wait for his son from heaven, the text says. The Thessalonians converted and purposed themselves to wait for God's son to return from heaven. This, of course, is referring to Jesus. In verse 3, Paul, Paul refers to him by the Lord Jesus Christ, but here he refers to him as God's son, God's son, which is obviously a title that stresses the deity of Christ, that he was God. And it says he's going to descend from heavens, descend from the heavens because this is where he currently is. He is the one who was resurrected from the dead, raised from the dead. He is the resurrected and ascended one. The resurrection of Christ is really the grounds and the, the guarantee that he will come again. If he had remained dead in the grave, we would have no hope of a return, obviously. But the resurrection of Christ from the dead is a really just a central tenet to the gospel message. It was a, a crucial element of, of Paul's preaching. And even in Thessalonica, when he came, he worked to convince the Jews from the scriptures that the Christ must suffer and then rise again. Rise again from the dead. So this is what Paul preached. He preached the resurrection. And so God's son is the one here who was resurrected from the dead. And the text says he's also Jesus. It names him. It names him as Jesus, which is a name meaning Savior, of course. And he's also our rescuer. He rescues us from the wrath which is coming. He rescues us. And, and the, this wrath is not just a general wrath. It is the wrath, the wrath that will come upon all mankind. And he specifically has in mind a future day of wrath that is coming. And Paul really did not need to elaborate on this wrath any further because he knew his readers already understood it. He had already taught it to them. 
preaching and explaining the wrath of God is really just another central tenet to the gospel message itself. I don't believe you can adequately share the good news of Jesus Christ unless you touch on this subject of wrath. God's wrath against our sin is really the bad news that makes the good news of the gospel wonderful news. We need that bad news. We need to understand the bad news. And so simply to find God's wrath is his holy, righteous anger against sin. And because God is holy, and he is just, and he is righteous, his wrath is a necessary reality. If you take away God's wrath and pretend it doesn't exist, you're left with an evil God who tolerates evil. So a good God must also be a God of wrath. And God's wrath is really just the holy revulsion of God's nature against anything that contradicts God's holiness. So all those who sin against God and his holiness justly become the targets of God's wrath, his divine wrath. God's just, uh, God's just righteous judgment ought to be unleashed on all those who defy him and rebel against him. And for those who say, well, well I just worship a God of love, I don't, not a God of wrath, my response is that you cannot have one without the other. All of God's perfection, all of his attributes demand his wrath. Without God's wrath, the love of God is just eviscerated. And since we are all sinners, the Bible says clearly, there is no one righteous, not even one. And we thereby have accrued God's wrath by our sin. What we need is rescue. And in Jesus, we have this rescuer. He rescues us from the very real wrath to come. So the, the Son of God, the one that was dead but now has been raised, this Savior named Jesus, this rescuer from the wrath to come is the one whom we eagerly wait for. He's our future hope. So the Thessalonians turned to God to wait for Jesus to return. And the idea is that a continual ongoing waiting. They kept waiting for his return. The hope of Christ's Return was just real and, and powerful for Paul and these Thessalonians. And so it should be for us. These Christians were eagerly and expectantly looking for the coming of Christ, whose arrival was anticipated at any time. And while it's not specifically stated in First or Second Thessalonians, it's everywhere assumed that this generation of Christians expected Christ to come. They were ready for him to come. And that should be the expectation of every generation of the church. This theme is just emphasized over and over again in our New Testaments. In Titus 2.13, Paul writes that we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of, our glory and great, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Paul commands in Jude 21, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. The church in Corinth Paul wrote this, eager, the church in Corinth there eagerly awaited the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 1.7. Paul in instructed the church of Philippi to do the same. He said, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of his glory. So this eager anticipation of just the imminent return of Christ is just an undeniable key note of Paul's epistles. And this is really a distinguishing mark of Christianity. 
We eagerly await for Christ's return. And sadly, much of modern Christendom has lost this unique feature of our Christian living. And the result has become really the, just the, impover, the impoverishing of our faith. An eager anticipation of Christ's imminent return is really an essential, an essential part of, of following Christ. And it's really an essential part of mature Christianity. And yet this blessed hope is under attack today, either for theological reasons, which is very possible, or just satanic, materialistic concerns and distractions that get us focused on this world and not Christ's return. But as a result, many are losing sight of this hope. So let me ask you, are you looking forward to his coming? Do you think about Christ's coming? Do you hope for it? Do you pray towards it? Do you await it? Are you eagerly longing for his return? This is something I think we can grow into and should grow into. Understanding that this hope will fundamentally change how we live. This is an altogether different way of life, separate from the thinking of the world, entirely different. It's a future hope. And so as Paul rounds out this extended explanation in chapter 1 of his thanksgiving for this church, he, he highlights really several fundamentals of the faith here. We might consider all of them as really Paul's standard disciple-making curriculum. We see the nature of true conversion discussed. We see turning to God from idols. We see the na- nature of repentance, fors- forsaking sin, turning to God. We see the result of a, of a slave-like submission to God. We see the expectation of God's return from heaven. We see the resurrection understood resurrection of God's son from the grave and also the the impending wrath for all that would reject him and yet the incredible news also of Christ being our rescuer the one who rescues all of these things were just fundamental tenets of Christianity that Paul explained to this church and we should know these things and we should understand them ourselves Paul understood that making disciples required a lot of teaching which he did. He taught them theology. He taught them the nature of salvation. He taught, he taught them about the person of Christ. He taught them about the dynamics of the Trinity. He taught them about the character of God. He taught them about God's wrath. He taught them about the reality of future judgment. These were things that Paul taught in order to make disciples. He also taught them practical theology about how they were to live in light of the truths. So we must all know theology in the sense so that we can teach it and thereby make disciples. Paul said in Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That's our mission. We're completing one another in Christ. We're maturing one another in Christ. So this is our goal, to teach and to understand the truth. So let's pray towards that end. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this first chapter of Thessalonians. What a great joy it has been to see all that God has done here in this people. We just, Lord, we just think of the gospel expanding in this sense. What, 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 I wish we could be there, to just be a part of this city's transformation and the, and the church just turning from idol worship to worshiping you. What an amazing thing. Uh, Lord, we just pray that you would do that work here today. Lord, as our nation moves further and further away from you and our, our foundation of uh, biblical ideas are being eroded everywhere we look, 
We just pray that you'd do a new work. We pray that you would rise up faithful men and women from our congregation to preach the, preach the gospel, preach Christ, that all over the city there be faithful churches preaching Christ, winning people to Christ, and, and living for Christ, living in slave-like submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, every area of their life in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would do a work like that. Would, would we see it for your glory, for all for your glory? Would we see men bow their knee before the Lord Jesus Christ and turn from secular humanistic ideologies and turn to the true living God and worship him? Lord, we just long for this day. We long for Christ's return as well, knowing that we, never, we do not know when he will return, but we are waiting him anxiously, so we do pray, Lord, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We long for you to return. We long for justice to be established upon the face of the earth. We long for there to be a one good monarch ruling over the face of the earth. We look forward to that day and long for it and look forward to our being there. And so we look forward anxiously in faith. We pray that you would give us more faith, enable and support our faith. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.